But anyway, I'd like for you to go on a journey with me, if you would, and go back to that period, that moment when you accepted Christ. Now, for some of us, that might be a longer journey than others. And it may be that if that was when you were a child, you may not relate to about what, I, what I'm about to say. But my journey, I'm not sure what was going on in your head and in your mind and your heart at that time. Uh, but I remember what was going on in mine. There's several, several dynamics swirling around that, that were very present, very, um, very much getting my attention at that moment. But one of them, and probably the main one that I remember, was that I, I sensed and I knew that I had this, this darkness that was growing inside of me. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that it had a power over me. And I knew that I needed, I, I knew that if, if I let go, it would absolutely control me. For the most part, it was like, I felt like I was, I felt like I had this, this coil spring that I was holding, trying to keep compressed. And I knew I wasn't gonna be able to do that very much longer. And I didn't know what was gonna happen if I really let go of that. But it was this dark power inside of me. It had a grip on my heart and I didn't know what it was. It was about that time I began hearing about Jesus in a way that I finally understood that. Telling me who he was, what he did on the cross, why that mattered. And when, when I heard that, I learned not only was Jesus willing to bring forgiveness into my life, which I desperately needed, but also he was willing to bring into my life a new power and ability to live a new life that I really wanted to live, but I didn't know how to live it. I'd always been defeated when I tried. But this possibility of a new life, that was really, really attractive to me. And so I, I gave my life to Christ, and I did have an initial sort of um, respite, I think, from, from that darkness. And I don't remember how long it lasts, but over a period of time, after a while, it began to creep back into my life, that darkness. And I remember, I remember feeling that darkness beginning to take over, and I remember the same attitudes began to resurface and reappear in my relationships. The same thoughts were there, the same temptations, and I felt powerless once again. And I began wondering, well, what was this thing I gave my life to? And I thought Christ was gonna give me power over that, and I, I wasn't sure what happened to know how to think about that, because my, my life now was eerily similar, this new life was eerily similar to the old life, and it disturbed me. But I kept coming back, and I thought, I thought maybe Christianity was based on false advertising, but I kept coming back to this thought and all these passages in scripture that talked about new life. And I remember Jesus talked about having, giving us an abundant life. And that, that sounded better than the life I had. Uh, and then Paul talked a lot about the fact that, that in Christ we're new creatures. And the old has been passed away and new, the new has come. So I, I like that. And I remember coming across those passages. He talked about how we're going to be transformed into the image of Christ. I like that. I saw these passages. So it made me go back and rethink what's going on in my life? Why, is I, why do I not have that promised life, new life that he had described? So what we have is we have on one end, we have this, the old life, and then there's a continuum over here is the new life. And you have to figure out, and you just be honest with yourself right now, where am I in that journey from the old life to new life? Where, where is the needle on all of this? And today, this morning, what we want to talk about is how to move from this old life to the new life. Now, the new life, one of the passages that really gripped me the most 
uh, was Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And I remember as a young Christian, that was one of the first passages I came across, and it, it, it really did grip me. I wanted that. The thought of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. To think that those are the words that could describe my life. My understanding is that if the Spirit was in my life long enough, that's what He would do in my life. And so I wanted that. I was, I was very attracted to that. But also you had the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. I don't know if we have that on the screen or not, but in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, it talks about everything from sexual immorality and, and impurity on the one hand, and they're all the way to envy and drunkenness and dissensions and, and all of that. And so I would look at that passage in Galatians 5, the, the, the deeds of the flesh, and then I compare that with the fruit of the Spirit, and I say, no, which, which of these lists describes me the most? And too many times I find the things that are in that deeds of the flesh list and I said, you know, those are supposed to be disappearing. I'm supposed to be outgrowing that somehow, some way. So all of that leads us to the passage that we have this morning in James chapter 1. And James is going to give us some instruction that will, I believe, help us in that movement from the old life to the new life. Before I go there, before I read those words, I, I would like to um, tell you another story about a man probably a man that I adulate too much, but he's a person who helped lead me to Christ and helped me to learn uh, just how to walk with Christ. Uh, but I remember one day, this is like 30 years ago. So I was in my 30s, he was in his 50s. And I remember talking to him and asking him a question one day at lunch. I said, you know, what, what's God doing in your life right now? What, what, what's new? What, what's he teaching you that's new in your life? Uh, something maybe you didn't know before. And I remember his answer to that, and it, and it humbled me so much. He said, Bill, well, you know what? I've just recently realized that I already know more than I'm doing. I've already got more truth than I know what to do with. He said, if, if God shut off the faucet of truth into my life right now, I could live 50 or 80 or 100 years more and still not apply everything I know. And then he said this, I don't covet more truth. I covet more Christ-likeness. Now, I want, I want you to understand, last week, Ryan gave a great message. And one of the phrases in there, he said, I, I like the thought that he talked about that he, we should have a word-saturated life. I'm in full agreement with that. I embrace that. It was a great sermon. But a word-saturated life. And that's true. In addition to that, today I want to talk about a word-activated life. Because we don't want to be hoarders. Um, there are survivalists who store food and rations in their basement in case there's ever a, a great catastrophe of some sort. So they go down and pull out those rations and, and they can live on that, right? And I think what we do as Christians way too much is store all the truth down in our basement waiting for some time that we might need it. Well, we need it right now. We, we need to take those rations now and put them into our life right away. So today, that's the passage we're gonna look, look at in uh, James chapter one, verses 22 through 25. Is that up on the screen for us? But it talks about, uh, in, in that passage, James talks about, and, and Travis read this earlier, James talks about 
two contrasts. And he's, he's, he's exhorting us on, uh, on how to live. And he's exhorting us to obey and not just to hear only, but also to act. But there's two contrasts that he talks about in this passage. The one, uh, one contrast is a contrast about what we, what we look at. And the other is what we do with what we look at. So two contrasts, what we look at and then what we do with what we look at. So first, let's talk about what we look at. And in this, in this passage, he, he uses the, the imagery of a mirror. And I was going to talk a lot about mirrors and decide not to talk about mirrors because the important thing here is not the mirror. The important thing is what we're seeing in the mirror. So, and what mirror is this? I, I was looking at that, studying it, and I finally decided that James would call this, if we, if we had him here, we asked him, he'd probably call this the, the, the mirror of how are we to live? If we're looking at the mirror of how are we to live, we have two different images we can look at. We can look at us, this man looks at himself intently in the mirror, or we can look at the perfect law, the law of liberty. So we can look at us or the law of liberty. So what does it mean to look at us, to look at ourselves in the mirror? Well, I thought about that from three different directions. One of them is just kind of a philosophical thing. So James is making a, a distinction between us and the perfect law. So looking at us, that is us apart from what God tells us. That's us independent of God. And in fact, philosophically, man is always, mankind is always, we've always wanted to be autonomous. In fact, we resent the idea of having to answer to a God who has authority over us. We want autonomy. So I think the first thing we're looking at in this mirror is if we're figuring out how to live, well, we want to be the ones that determine that. We want autonomy from God. Now, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Because back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're in an incredibly wonderful environment that God has created for them, placed them in, and everything about it is good. Even they, they are good. Everything about it is good. And in this place, there are no restrictions. They were free to go out and do anything and everything they could even think of. There were, there were no restrictions except one, right? So their, their rule book had only one rule, just one rule. You can eat anything everywhere. You can eat of every tree, whatever you want, the fruit of every tree. But, but there's just one tree over here. If you'll just please, that's mine. Just, just leave it for me, God's saying to them. Just don't, don't bother that tree. But the billions of other trees are out there, have at it. You, you, can, you can do anything you want to do, but there's just one, one tree. Just, just the fruit of that tree, just leave it alone. And of course, the serpent comes, tempts them. And what does he appeal to? He says, well, you know, first of all, God's, God's withholding something from you. God doesn't really have your best interest at heart, even though he made all this good stuff here and you're good and everything else. But, uh, you know, he, he must not love you because he put a restriction on you. And if, really the issue is, if you eat from the fruit of that tree, then you're going to be like God. You're no longer have to answer to anybody. You're going to be totally autonomous, totally free. God will have no control over you. So don't give in to his, control, his controlling ways with all of his rules, which is just one, by the way. Don't give in to that. God's, God, God has ill intent for you. So they yielded that because they wanted 
full freedom. One rule in the rule book was one too many for them. So on a philosophical level, we want autonomy. So we look into that mirror and of how we're to live, we look at it and we want to be the ones who determine how we're to live. Uh, socially, uh, some of you may have a hard time believing this, but people who are my age and older know that there was a time in our society when our society acknowledged the Judeo-Christian ethic, ethic about life and about morality and how we're to live. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody gladly yielded to that, but they did acknowledge that. In our whole society, that was acknowledged. And not everybody lived by, by any means, but it was still acknowledged. It was still, uh, it was still what was informing the, the legislation of our laws, the Judeo-Christian ethic. That was in our society. Now, you know, today, that's, that's totally changed. Today, anything goes, right? And we don't want restrictions from anywhere, much less God, going back to the autonomy thing. So, so we, we want to determine our own lives here once again. But anything goes, ironically, except Judeo-Christian morality. Finally, on a third level, on an individual level, not just philosophically, not just socially, but also on an on a, on a individual level, bottom line, you and I, really, we just want to do what we want to do. Um, and, and you've probably heard this a lot, you've heard it a lot in the last couple of decades, more than you heard it in the previous decades of my life anyway. You know what, what you know what's to be, to be your guide about life? Your heart. Your heart is your guide. Uh, that's, that's not a biblical concept. Our heart is diseased. Our heart is de desperately wicked. And, and um, that's not the way we would go. But I hear all the time, let your heart be your guide, right? So we're, once again, we've, we've abandoned God's teaching and we're, we're just, whatever, whatever seems right to us at the moment, that's what we choose to engage. And certainly we don't want, even if God's there, we don't want him pulling rank on us. We just want to live our life our way. And... Um, we want to be the ones deciding how to, how to live. So if that's the mirror that you're looking at, the mirror of ourselves, then what happens, I mean, you're free to do that, but what happens is that you end up with only a composite image of, of, uh, of what, it, what we're supposed to be like, how we're supposed to live. We have this, these human musings on life and we live life that way and we don't submit our lives to anything higher than ourselves. And so there's no clear path forward. And we just end up in a labyrinth of trying to find direction where we wanted to go. So, so again, we can look at the path, we can look into the mirror of ourselves, of human thinking and our own thinking, macro or micro, and we end up being confused. We end up with no clear path forward. Now, by contrast, um, James tells us, well, let's look at the law of liberty. The other option, the contrast, is to look at the law of liberty. And I love the fact that he calls this the law of liberty. And I actually think that there's something very specific about what this law of liberty is. I think it's the law of Christ, and I'm not going to go into explaining all that. But let's just make it generic. This is just the word of God in general. All of God's word, and all of his instruction to us. Let's just make it that for a moment. And what does it mean for us to look into that mirror 
and as opposed to looking into the mirror of, of, uh, of ourselves. On a philosophical level, then what that means, looking into the law of liberty, God's law, what that has to do with on a philosophical level is that we're, first of all, we are, we are, we are gladly yielding to the authority of God over our lives. That's the first thing it means. As, as con- contrast that with people who are rejecting the authority of God, we, who want to be totally autonomous. Now we're saying, no, we're not autonomous, we're creatures, and we're gonna live under the, auto- uh, under the authority of God in our lives. So we're gonna trust his motives rather than be suspicious of his motives. Suspicion is what happened in the garden. That's what the serpent was playing on, the suspicion, or he planted the idea and played on that idea with Adam and Eve, suspicion about God's motives. But for us to look into the law of liberty, we begin to learn about a God who we can trust him. We're not suspicious of his motives. He has good motives, and we're willing to yield to that, those motives because, because of his authority, and we're, we're going to yield gladly to what he says about our life. Um, so that's, that's what's happening on the philosophical level. Now, on a social level, what that means, at least for you and me, I think and there's a lot of ways we could apply that, but on a social level, here's what I said. It's we live out the kingdom values that we learn about in Scripture. We live, we live out those kingdom values first in our homes. We live out those kingdom values then in our homes, at work, and then our larger communities. So that's what it means to look at the law of liberty socially. We live those out in a communal way, beginning at home and then working outward. And uh, that would be on a social level. What, what I love about the, uh, the fruit of the spirit that's described, the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I love the, what comes right after that in the passage. And it says, Against such things, there's no law. There's no law about being gentle, prohibiting you from being gentle. Oh, be careful, don't be too gentle, you know. There's no law, where you're not gonna be thrown in jail to be, by being kind. Socially, it's nothing but good that flows out of you as you're living out the fruit of the Spirit. Nobody's gonna come around and, and, and legislate against you there's no law against those kinds of activities through your life. So philosophically, socially, and then on an individual level, really what it comes down to, oh, I, I forgot one bullet point. Um, back on the social level, I think it also then means, because we live in a society where we have a voice and a vote, we have a means of influencing our government, so we influence the legislating and enforcing of, of justice and morality because those are things that, are, that God has revealed, clearly good for us, he, he's the one that created us. When we're thinking about God as um, the legislator of our lives, we realize he's, he's legislating good things for us, and we want other people to share in that. But on an individual level, what it comes down to in terms of what are we looking at, we're looking at, at um, the perfect law, the law of liberty, um, and we're affirming things like that, that that when, when God's word confronts us, we look into the mirror and it shows us something in us that's wrong or misdirected or misguided, we go, oh, okay, and we make a change to bring our life back conforming to what God wants. 
in what God's saying. When, so when his way displaces our own way, then we yield to that displacement. Another observation we make about this is that God's, something about God's commands. I don't know if it will be helpful to you, but it was really helpful to me one day when somebody pointed out that God's commands are for one of two things. They're either for our good, to, pro- to provide something for our good, or to protect us from something that is bad. To provide something good or protect us from something bad. They're never arbitrary. They don't come from a, an arbitrary God who, who's apathetic. He comes from a loving God who cares for us. I remember probably the night I came to Christ, that day I'd heard a, a story or somebody was explaining Jesus to me and, the, and they said this, said, you know, if, um, if your car is broken down, you take it to a mechanic. You know, and, and, and if your lawnmower is broken down, you take it to a lawnmower repair person, right? So where do you take your life when your life is broken down? Well, you take it, the God who made it is certainly capable of repairing it. So you take it to that person who made all of life and because he knows all of life, he knows how, he knows how we're wired and how we're supposed to work and how life works best So he's given us instructions about that. And so we bring our life, we look into the mirror of God's word about how we're to live, and then when it's different from what we think, we go, oh, well, I'm just gonna change what I think and adopt what God says because he's either providing something good or protecting me from something bad in the doing of this, so I'm I'm going to obey. So it comes down to an issue of trust about God and and what, what he's about and is he trustworthy? Do I really trust his instructions for my life? So, that's the first contrast, the contrast between looking at ourselves in the mirror and looking at the law of liberty in the mirror. So, that contrast is what do we look at? The second contrast is what do we do with what we look at? And there's, there's two options here. The first option was the man looks in the mirror, sees himself, and then he goes away and he totally forgets. So, that's one option. The other option is, actually he says, is to persevere. In verse 25, uh, the, the, per, the perseverance, the synonym for that is to simply be a doer who acts. So you can either ignore and forget or you can act. So those are the options. That, so this, this sermon is very disproportionate. This point is just very, very short. Um, what we do with what we, what we see in the mirror we act rather than forget. Bottom line, that's just the bottom line of what we do. So, um, I love John 14, 21. He who has my, Jesus is speaking, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So if you're ever wondering what Jesus, how he assesses on earth who loves him, it's about who obeys him. He doesn't listen to the professions of our mouth. The words that we sing, he watches to see if we do what he says. Out of a, because that doing is the way we're saying we trust him. We're trusting him to order our life, so we're gonna do what he says. So, <clears throat> we, the two contrasts, one, first contrast is what you see in the mirror, what you're looking at. 
and the other is what you do with what you look at. So we want to be people who are doers with what we see of the law, the perfect law of liberty and the word of God. Now, I'd like to close, but um, just with a story here that I read a few years ago. It's a story of a public teacher. And this public teacher retired with $2 million. I'm going, wow, <laughs> that's impressive for anybody. But I, I just don't think of a public school teacher as being somebody who can retire with $2 million. You know? So I read the article trying to find out how did he retire with $2 million. And it's really interesting because you read the article and if, and if we're to believe him, he said, well, when I was in college, a, a professor talked about, in a business class, was talking about the power of compounding interest. And he convinced me that if I, could, if I would just start saving every paycheck and put something aside every paycheck towards my retirement, especially early on, then the, the, the power of compound interest would take that and make it a million dollars. I thought, I can do that. So he did that all of his life and regularly followed the prescription by the professor and he ended up with $2 million. So he was a doer of what he heard, right? So that's a model for us as we think about here at the end, what, what do we need to do? So basically, it's still be a doer. Let him be a model for us for a moment. So when, you, when you're looking at the mirror of God's word and you see it reflects back to you and the law of liberty says, well, uh, love your neighbor. Or it says, forgive those who have mistreated you. Or you look and it says, love your enemies. Or it says, well, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Or it says, pursue sexual purity. Or take every thought obedient, captive to the obedience of Christ. Or it says, let your mind dwell on things that are true and right and lovely and of good repute and excellent or worthy of praise. A lot of times my mind's not dwelling on those things, you know. But when it says, when it reflects back to you, that's where your mind ought to go. When it's saying, beware of greed, but instead to be generous. When it's saying those things, when you look in the mirror and it says that, and then you look at yourself and you go, you know, I, that's not me. Then the action is to do what it says. First, we'll trust him. It might, it may, it might mean you need to reaffirm your trust in him. But we, we affirm our trust for him. Then we begin doing what we already know to do go down in the basement, pull out some of those rations that have been sitting there for a long time, say, I need to start doing that. I need to start loving my neighbor. Or, or, in addition to that, then whatever else new comes back in that mirror as you're looking to that mirror of God's perfect law, law of liberty, then we begin applying and obeying that as well. So, what we're trying to do again, the old life that I desperately needed to get away from and that you desperately need to get away from, and then the new life that's offered in Christ, we, we want to move the needle in that direction. And the way we do that, our part in that is through obedience. Our part of that is to put into practice the things that we see in Scripture. Because if you don't put it into practice, there's no exercising of your faith and your trust and your submission to the Lord 
you just have stagnant truth in your life. We, we want the word activated in our lives. So on this continuum, just to be clear in the end here, the Holy Spirit is the one who is in us to move us in that direction. He's the engine that drives us in the direction of this new life in Christ. But your doing of what you see in the law of liberty, your doing, your obedience, your acting on that, that's the fuel that the engine consumes to move you in the direction of the new life. So let's just keep that image in mind. Let me close this in prayer. Father, this is almost too simple. That you have a new life for us and not one that's simply just a dream that someday we'll, we'll get that in heaven, you know, but a new life now that is putting aside, it's, it's setting aside, it's defeating the power of sin in our lives, and it's personifying the new life in Christ, the power that we have through the Holy Spirit. But all of that, that has to go through this portal of our mind and our will where we yield in obedience to you. Help us to see you and to trust you and affirm that trust of you. Help us to take that trust and translate it into obedience. And Father, over time, we like, like that teacher who simply did the right thing all those years, over time, our lives will change and they, in fact, will be new. And it, those around us will see that and they'll want to know where that came from. And of course, we'll be able to say it came from you. We're grateful for that, Lord. We want to be obedient children. I pray that you give us the grace to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.